Me and him were sheriffs at the same time, him up in Plano and me out here. I think he's pretty proud of that. I know I was. Some of the old-time sheriffs never read more a gun. A lot of folks find that hard to believe. Jim Scarborough never carried one. That's the younger Jim. Gaston Borkins wouldn't wear one up in Comanche County. I always like to hear about the old-timers. Never missed a chance to do so. You can't help but compare yourself against the old-timers. Can't help but wonder how they'd have operated these times. There's this boy I sent to the electric chair at Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14-year-old girl. Papers said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. Told me that he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I surely don't. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. You'd have to say, okay. I'll be part of this world. You may recognize that clip. It comes from a, a movie. It's a haunting movie called No Country for Old Men. And in the movie, which is based on the book, there's this sheriff. And he keeps investigating these terrible crimes that take place. And for two hours in this movie, he keeps wondering out loud, why is the world so bad? What is wrong with everybody? I sure wish that sheriff was here today because we're going to answer that question. How many of you, just out of curiosity, like to go to movies? Okay. How many of you like to read? Okay. I'm with you. I like both. I like to go to movies and I like to read. And if you like either one, you're going to absolutely love the series that we're about to start because we're going to look for the next several weeks at one book in the Bible that quite frankly could just as easily be put on the screen as it could be on the page. It has all the elements of a movie. It has a director. His name is Paul. It has a great setting, the world. It has a great supporting cast, you and me, all of humanity. The plot is thick and it's all about how God tries to reach out to the world, and the world keeps rejecting God. It begins by telling us how God in love reached out with a loving hand, and we knocked his hand away. And the results of this reaction is all the sin and all the suffering that we see on a worldwide scale and that is proven to be totally devastating. Now, the good news is, as we know, most every movie has a hero. And the hero of this movie is Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's not just the hero of this movie. He is the hero of the Bible because he brings the one thing that this world not only needs, but it must have if it's going to experience life the way it was meant to be experienced. 
If it's going to know the God that created it, and if it's going to fulfill the purpose for which it was put here. And the one thing that Jesus brings that helps all of us get those things done is the word grace. I believe outside of Jesus, it is the sweetest word in the Bible. I believe outside of Jesus, it is the greatest word in the English language. Because the ending of this movie, and this is what you're going to love about this movie we're going to be watching. The end of this movie has a twist you would have never seen coming. It has an ending that you absolutely can't believe. As a matter of fact, the movie winds up being so great and so fantastic. It's not only the big, it would be the biggest blockbuster of all time. I believe it is the greatest story you could ever read. Because once you understand grace, and I'm convinced even church people don't totally understand grace. Once you really understand grace, what it is, how it works, and why you need it, and how you can experience it, I really believe you would stand in line to watch the movie. You would stand in line to buy the book. Now, we're calling this series Real Grace. Because over the next several weeks, well, here's, here's the good thing. Here's why you don't want to miss it. Here's why you need to invite the people you live next door to, the people you work with, to be a part of this series. Because probably more than anything we've done in a long time, let me to, tell you who I promise you're going to see every week in this movie. You're going to see you. You are in the movie. You're all over the movie. As a matter of fact, this incredible story is found in what many people call the greatest letter ever written. And I don't disagree with that. So if you brought a copy of the Bible, or I heard a guy say the other day, you know, I used to love to hear the rustling of the pages when people would turn. Now I get to see the glow of all these electronic devices. So whatever you use, whether you use a Bible, an iPad, notepad, you know, an iPhone, whatever, I want you to turn to a book in the Bible called the Book of Romans. And you might want to bookmark it. We're going to be there over the next several weeks. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Now, Romans has been called the constitution of Christianity. And, and, and there's, there's a reason for this. There is no book in the Bible, really, no book, that has probably been more instrumental in changing lives and more instrumental in impacting the church than this letter to the Romans. I don't know if you know much about church history or not, but almost without exception, every great revival that's ever taken place, every great reformation that's ever taken place in the church can be traced directly back to the book of Romans. You know, and I, I thought about that. You know, why is that true? Why is it that all above all the other books in the Bible, why has God used the book of Romans to bring these great revivals and to bring the great reformations that we've had in the church? And I believe the reason is because nowhere else in the Bible is the case for God's grace more clearly and more beautifully illustrated than in this book called Romans. Now, here, let me just kind of forewarn all of you. If you want to know what separates our church from a lot of other churches, not all the other churches, but a lot of other churches, and if you want to know what separates me from a lot of other preachers, not all of the preachers, but a lot of other preachers, you're going to see it today. You're going to see today, this is the kind of message, and I'm, I'm not trying to be arrogant when I say this, but what I'm going to preach this morning, this is what separates the men from the boys. Most churches will not get within a mile of what I'm going to talk about today. 
Most pastors avoid the passage we're going to deal with like the plague because this movie does not get off to a very happy start. You see, the director begins by setting up this world, our world. And here's what he says. He said, our world, this entire world is under a very dark cloud. And it's a cloud that is not full of rain. It is a cloud that is full of wrath. So let's pick up the story in verse 18. Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, you probably have already picked up already. If you haven't, I'll go ahead and tell you. This movie is not sugar-coated. This movie, in some ways, would be rated R. It's going to show everything. It's not going to hide anything. And Paul does not start off by, by being, you know, saying some nice things. This letter does not off, start off by telling, telling you what most churches want to tell you today. Hey, you're okay, God's okay, and God's okay that you're okay, and you be okay that God's okay that you're okay. That is not the way Paul starts this off. Paul starts this off by saying, our world is under the wrath of God because of the godliness and the wickedness of people. There's one thing that makes God angry, very angry, and that is evil. There's one thing that provokes his wrath, and that is evil. Now, let me just stop. Let me call time out right there. I get it. I get it. I realize there may be some right, maybe in this room, maybe at our Mill Creek campus, maybe you're watching online right now, maybe you've already clicked the computer off, or you're about to, because just, you know, you're rolling your eyes right now, and you're saying, oh, man, I thought we left this wrath stuff behind many, many years ago. You know, I, I thought we left all this negative stuff behind many, many years ago. I don't want to come and hear about wrath. You talk about politically incorrect. We don't want to hear about the wrath of God. We don't like to hear about the wrath of God. And we don't hear much about the wrath of God because we don't want to. And I, listen, I get that. And I know what some people would think right now. Look, can you not just talk about the love of God? That's all I want to hear. I don't want to hear about this wrath stuff. Can you not just talk about the love of God? Well, let me give you a little clue. I'm going to prove this to you. It is because of the love of God we have to talk about the wrath of God. You can't have the love of God without the wrath of God. Now, let me explain. I'm going to prove that to you. How many of you have children? How many of you have grandchildren? How many of you, if you don't have children or grandchildren, how many of you have at least one person in this world that you love with everything that you have? Okay. Now, I want you to imagine. Let's just take your kids and your grandkids. I just want you to imagine. Think about the most vile, wicked, evil thing that somebody could do to one of your children. Or think about the most vile, wicked thing that someone could do to one of your grandchildren. All right. I just, I mean, I'm not trying to get you to be, you know, graphic, but just think about what that could be. Think about, oh, this would be the worst thing, including murder. Simple question. Would that make you angry? If the answer to that question is no, I'm not, I'm not being funny. You're a sick person. You need psychological help. You say, well, of course that would make me angry. Of course. So in other words, You'd be full of, what's the word? Wrath. 
Oh, you would. Oh, yeah, I would be absolutely full of wrath. Well, now, wait a minute. Time out. Why would you be angry? I didn't say, what if somebody hurt you? I said, what if they hurt your kids? What if they hurt your grandkids? Why would you be angry if they didn't really directly hurt you? You say, well, idiot, moron, because they hurt somebody I dearly love. Has the light come on? I, I, I want to give you a principle right now that's not just the key takeaway from this message, but for the entire series. I want you to always remember, keep this in mind as we watch this entire movie, because everything I'm going to say in the next several weeks, this is the backdrop of what I'm going to say. You ready? Watch this. God hates sin so much because he loves the sinner even more. God loves, hates sin so much because he loves the sinner even more. So the next time somebody says to you, do you really believe God is a God of hate? You can say, well, yeah, he is. He hates sin. Well, really? Why does he hate sin? He hates sin so much because he loves the sinner even more. See, God hates anything. God is angry with anything. God's wrath is against anything that hurts the people he created. He hates anything that hurts you. He hates anything that hurts your marriage. He hates anything that hurts your family. He hates anything that hurts your children. And he especially hates anything that hurts your soul. And here's what I would say to you. You cannot, you could not, you should not, and you would not expect anything less of a God of love. So here's the point I want you to understand. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, I want to hear about the love of God. But can you just please not talk about the wrath of God? No, I have to. Because there are, one, there are two sides of the same coin. If God is a God of love, God has to be a God of wrath. And when you think about wrath, and here's the thing I want you to get. When we think about wrath and we think about anger, I don't want you to think about the way we get angry, okay? Because when I talk about the wrath of God, it's not like our wrath. When I talk about the anger of God, I'm not talking about our anger. So let me tell you what's true about us. Do you know why we get angry 99.9% .9 of the time? Can anybody tell me why we get angry? Because somebody hurt us, right? Here's a good illustration. You're driving down the interstate. Somebody pulls in front of you. Now, let's just be honest. We're, we're in church, so don't lie about it. <laughs> How many of you get angry when somebody just pulls right in front of you? Now, come on, hold your hand up. All right? You want to hold up one finger. I get that, right? I understand. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Somebody pulls in front of somebody else. Does that make you angry? Doesn't bother me. I don't care. I just go, bad luck for you. I don't care. No, when we get angry 99.9% .9 of the time, why do we get angry? Because somebody has hurt us. Somebody has done an injustice to us. Somebody has done something wrong to us. That's not what makes God angry. This, this is so important to understand. God is angry at sin, not primarily because of what it does to him. God is angry at sin primarily because of what it does to us. Yeah, you know why God hates divorce? Because of what it does to marriage and to the kids. 
Do you know why God hates abortion? And you know why abortion makes God angry? Because of what it does to unborn children. Do you know why God hates murder and why murder makes God angry? Because God hates what it does to the life that was created in his image. So when I talk about the wrath of God and the anger of God, I'm not talking about a God that loses his temper, flies into a rage, has a short fuse, is malicious, is vindictive, is spiteful. I'm talking about a God that is so holy, he exposes sin for what it is, and yet he is so loving, he opposes sin for what it is. See, God doesn't get angry because sin hurts him. God gets angry at sin because it hurts us. Now, this is a movie. I'm going to warn you now. This is not for the faint of heart. I told you it'd probably be R-rated, right? I mean, you know, you, this would be kind of movie. You'd, at least with your kids, you'd have to say, now, kids, listen, this is going to be hard to watch, but I'm just going to tell you, this is the world the way it really is. You know, someone once said, this is one of the greatest statements I've ever read. Someone once said that most people believe in a God without wrath who brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of Christ without a cross. And that's what you hear today in a lot of churches. There are a lot of churches out there. If that's what you want to hear, they're out there. And I'm not throwing rocks at them. I'm just telling you they're out there. Oh, there's the God that we serve. Oh, he's not a God of wrath. He's just a God of love. And you're not sinful. You're, 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 you're not basically bad. You're basically good. And, and, and we don't want to talk about the judgment of God. We just want to talk about the mercy of God. And by the way, we talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but we're not going to say a whole lot about Jesus on a cross. This movie's not that way. The, as a matter of fact, the Bible is not that way. So here's the question. Why is our world under this dark cloud of God's wrath? Why? What in the world have we done that is so harmful to ourselves and so harmful to each other that it has caused God's wrath to fall on us? Well, here's what you're going to see. It's all the result of a bad deal. We made a bad deal. And a matter of fact, that shouldn't surprise us because quite frankly, a bad deal is what got us in trouble in the begin with, to begin with. Because all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam made a bad deal and it basically ruined everything for all of us and it still gets us in trouble today. So if you're asking the question right now, so pastor, what is it? What is it about this world? What have we done that has caused this wrath of God to hang over the entire world? What is it? Paul says, okay, we've all done four things. You might want to write these down. Number one, we reject the witness of God. We reject the witness of God. Now, keep in mind what Paul is doing, beginning in Romans chapter 1, he's making the case for grace. In other words, put it this way. You know, we sing the amazing grace. You know how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Hey, look, grace is either amazing or it's just amusing. I mean, either we need it or we don't. Either it's a big deal or it's not. Either we all are in need of it or none of us are in need of it. But there's a question Paul said you've got to ask before you talk about grace, and that is we've got to answer the question of God. And so Paul begins by dealing primarily with people who have never gone to church, people who have grown up outside of religion, people who may have grown up on the other side of the world. That's kind of the question we all ask. Well, what about people who have never, quote, unquote, heard about God? 
And he says, okay, what evidence do we have that there's even a God to begin with? You talk about God's grace. What evidence do we even have that there's even a God that can give us grace to begin with? Paul says, okay, let me answer that question. And he gets right into it. Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, that is people who have not really been exposed to religion or any kind of church or anything like that. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, you talk about strong stuff. Paul doesn't mince words. He doesn't just say, well, you know, the evidence for God's existence is, is pretty strong, and you, you, you really ought to consider it. Here's what Paul basically says. There is one powerful divine creator and everybody knows it. Deep down, we all know it because he has given undeniable witness through the world and through the universe. In other words, what Paul says is, I don't care what the atheist says. I don't care what the fancy professor at Harvard has to say. I don't care what all these new atheists have to say about, oh, there really isn't any God. It's just an opium for the people. It's just a religious crutch we lean on. Paul said, look, there is a God, and deep down, everybody knows it. Deep down, everybody gets it. And beyond just that, we not only know there's a God, we know enough about this God to be held accountable. As a matter of fact, we know enough about this God to want to know this God even more. And so what Paul is saying was, this God who is invisible and this God who is unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through his creation, through what he has made. I'll give you an illustration. A few years ago, uh, I was up in South Dakota. And if you've ever, ever been up to the Dakotas, you ought to go, beautiful country up there. And I was up in South Dakota, and I was doing a, 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 a men's conference. Well, uh, we were very close, and I'd always wanted to go to Mount Rushmore. Have you ever been to Mount Rushmore or not? You've seen the pictures of it. Here's a picture. So we went to Mount Rushmore. Now, they, they have a, a, in their gift shop there, there's a theater. And you go into this theater and you watch a movie. And, and this movie shows uh, the incredible, meticulous handiwork and man hours that it took, you know, to, to, to turn this rock into the faces of these four presidents. I mean, out of solid rock. So I'm sitting there watching that movie. Now, when they got through, I have to be honest, I thought to myself, you know, not one time did they something, say something like this. They didn't say, you know, this used to be just an, a very, very uh, uh, ordinary natural rock formation. But through the years, it rained. And through the years, the, the rock began to erode. And one day, we looked up, and there they were. They didn't say that one time. And I thought to myself, I know why they didn't say that. Because even the most hardened skeptic and the most hardened atheist, if he just walked up and saw this in the rocks, it would never occur to anyone that somebody made that. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even enter the conversation. It would never occur to anyone. That they, and you know why? They don't have to tell us that somebody called those faces. If, if I didn't know anything about Mount Rushmore and I walked up on Mount Rushmore, here's what I would say to myself. 
I don't know who did that, but somebody did that. They didn't just get there by themselves. Somehow, somebody made that. And Paul said the same thing is true about the universe. For anybody to look at this universe and say, it just happened. Stuff happens. Paul said, you know what? <laughs> Every star is a billboard. Every sunrise is a neon sign. Every moonlight is a megaphone screaming out, there is a God. There is a creator of this universe. Here's what Paul is telling us. The problem is not that God has not spoken. That's not the problem. The problem is we won't listen. We refuse to listen. We shut our eyes to the truth. We shut our ears to the truth. We shut our heart to the truth. That's why I said they suppress the truth in godlessness. Godlessness. The problem is not that God has not given a good witness to himself. The problem is we reject the evidence. Listen, it doesn't matter where or how you look. It doesn't matter. Gaze into, the, gaze into outer space through a telescope and you'll see the evidence of the glory and the power of a creator. You peek through a microscope, you'll see the evidence of the incredible and incomparable brilliant mind of a creator. Paul said, look, you can just look at this universe, you can just look at this world and you can know there is a God of eternal power. There's a God with a divine nature. He said, there's a lot we can know about God. Let me just give you an illustration. Walk out to your car today and go home. And before you do, just kind of look around. Just kind of look up and just look around. And you can figure a lot of things out just on your own. You can say, okay, I may not know this God's name, but I'll tell you this. He must be intellectual because all of this had to be created by a brilliant mind. He, he must be powerful because no one can deny the incredible energy and power that's in the entire universe. He, he, he must be supernatural because in some real sense, he's got to be outside of nature itself. He must be eternal because space and time are confined within the universe. He must be spiritual because everything we see is material. So he says, you look up and you look down and you look all around and what do you see? This God has witnessed to himself. There's all the evidence anybody needs, whether you live in America or Africa, whether you live in a penthouse in New York City or you live in the darkest jungle of South America. Paul said, there is enough evidence for everybody to see to know there's a God up there. Can I get an amen to that? There's a God up there. There's a creator up there. There's somebody up there that's got his hand on the throttle. I'm not just here by accident. Somebody must have made all of that. I love the story of Sherlock Holmes and, and uh, Dr. Watson. I was reading this the other day. They, they went on a camping trip. And so as they lay down for the night, they, they went to sleep. Well, about 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, Holmes woke up. And um, he said, he woke Watson up, and he said, uh, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. And so Watson said, well, I, I see millions and millions of stars. And, Alexander, and Holmes said, um, so what does that tell you? And Watson said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and maybe billions of planets. He said, theologically, 
It tells me that God is great and we are small and insignificant. He said, meteorologically, it tells me we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. He said, what does it tell you? Holmes said, it tells me that somebody has stolen our tent. Now, this world, this universe, the stars, the planets, the moon, the oceans, this world tells us there is a creator. He is divine. He's powerful. He's glorious. And to reject that witness is a bad deal. And it can only hurt us and hurt others. And that's why it makes God angry. We reject the witness of God. I'll tell you something else we do. We replace the worship of God. We don't just, re just reject the witness of God. We replace the witness of God. Now, Paul has just addressed the fact that everybody's got some knowledge of God, right? Nobody's completely ignorant of God. Nobody's completely innocent before God. That's why somebody says, well, I don't think it's fair to judge somebody that's ignorant and innocent. Paul says, wait a minute. Nobody's totally ignorant. And nobody's totally innocent. We're going to talk about that later. And he said, the world, the world knows enough about God to want to know more about God. And yet... How does the world respond to this witness that God has given to himself? Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, I hate to tell you this, but do you know what the Greek word is for foolish? This will be something to remember. It means, it, the word is moron. That's what it means, okay? Just, that's what it is. It's moron. Paul says, there is enough to know about God that would cause us to turn to God, but instead, we act like morons. We do something totally moronic, and we turn away from God. We don't give him glory, and we don't give him gratitude. We don't praise him for who he is. We don't thank him for what he has done. And he said, the more we learn about the absolute magnificence and beauty of creation, the more we reject the creator. But it goes, it gets deeper and it gets worse. Paul said it's not just that we reject the idea of God. He said, we don't just reject the worship of God, we replace it. So he goes on to say this in verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, Paul says, the more reasons we're given to worship the true God, the more we're determined to worship false gods. Now, I know when you read that, you go, I don't even know, what is that talking about? Well, it's talking about idolatry. And so you may sit there and you may say, well, now, wait a minute. Again, you roll your eyes and you say, idolatry. We don't have a problem with idolatry. That, that was an ancient problem. That was an old world problem. That was a pagan problem. Oh, let me, I got news for you, ladies and gentlemen. Idolatry is alive and well today on planet earth. There's a lot of idolatry going around this world. And so in fact, let me define what I mean by an idol. Here's an idol. So you can ask yourself right now, if you ever have to battle idolatry in your life, because I will tell you, I do. An idol is anything that you want more than God. It's anything that's more important to you than God. And it's anything that brings you greater fulfillment than God. So I just want to ask you right now, be honest. 
Is there anything that you want more than God? Is there anything that is more important to you than God? Is there anything that makes greater, gives you greater fulfillment than God? Can I, can I just be honest? Let me tell you where, where I have to be careful. You better be careful not to make your children into idols. You better make sure not to make your grandchildren into idols. Now, I'm not trying to be ugly when I say this, okay? And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be insensitive. But that's why when people lose children or people lose a grandchild, they turn against God. They get angry. It's natural to get angry. That's not the problem. It's normal to say, God, why did you let this happen? The grief has to absolutely be devastating. I think about right now losing my grandchildren. I can almost weep. But I've even said to God about my, and I pray for my grandchildren every day. I've even said to God, God, if you were to take one of my grandchildren, if you were, God, give me the strength to say this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because I don't want to make my children into idols. I don't want to make my grandchildren into idols. So if you just get honest, yep, some of you, climbing that corporate ladder is an idol to you. Yeah, for some of you, hunting, fishing, golf, that's an idol to you. Yes, for some of you, sex and pornography, that's the idol to you. Yes, for some of you, getting to the top of the heap, that's, that's an idol for you. If I'm not careful, I can have pastoring a big church become an idol to me. We're all in the same boat. So don't you dare think that idolatry is not alive. And well, I could name so many of them. There's the idol, there's the idol of possessions. So we've got this insatiable desire to buy more stuff. There, there's the, there's the idol, idol of pride. So we become workaholics so we can work our way up the corporate ladder. There's the idol of personality. So from athletes to actors to musicians, celebrities are turned into deities and they're worshiped by their fans. There, there's the idol of pleasure. So we drink, we do drugs, we, we, we uh, overeat, we sleep around. Idolatry is alive and well. And here's what Paul is telling us. The fountainhead of the river of sin is idolatry. All sin ultimately is a problem of idolatry. Because listen, let me tell you something. There is no such thing as an atheist. Atheists don't exist. So what do you mean? Everybody worships something. Everybody. Everybody worships some God. They may not call it God, but they worship some God. They believe in some kind of deity. That's why the most common warning about sin in the Bible... Guess what it is? It's not lying. It's not gossip. It's not stealing. It's not even murder. The most common sin in the Bible that we're told to avoid and reject is idolatry. The very first commandment of the 10, what does it deal with? Idolatry. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven image. He starts off with that. Why? Because the fountainhead of all of sin is the, the river of sin flows from the fountainhead of idolatry. So Paul says, we make a bad deal. We exchange deity for idolatry. And the truth is, we, we replace the worship of the true God with a false God. And that is a bad deal. And it makes God angry because of what it does to us. But now watch this. Paul says now that the sin of idolatry, this is what it leads to. Watch this. He says, then we renounce the will of God. All this is a progression. He says, when you reject the witness, the witness of God, when you say, nope, not going to have the witness of God, I'm not going to have any part of it whatsoever. 
He said, then when you replace the worship of God, then you're going to renounce the will of God. Now, I want you to be forewarned. I told you what separates the men from the boys in this message. We're going to read something right now. I'm going to tell those of you who are watching on television, those who are watching online right now, those who will see this later. This is going to, what we're about to read right now, this is one of those passages that will make you very uncomfortable. It will make some people very angry. It will make some people want to do this. I get it. But what is more to the point is what God says it is. Okay, so buckle up. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Back to idolatry. Who has forever praised? Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. By the way, the only time lesbianism is ever mentioned in Scripture. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, time out. Don't email me. Don't write me. Don't call me. Email God. So I don't have his address. I don't either. Figure it out. He wrote it. He said it. And, and oh, by the way, it's true whether we believe it or not. That's irrelevant. So this is what he says. It's another bad deal. When we reject God and we replace God, we not only exchange deity for idolatry, we exchange what is natural for what is unnatural, and we exchange purity for impurity. Now, let me just say this. When Paul refers to homosexual practice or, or, or as unnatural, he doesn't just mean it kind of goes against mother nature. He's referring to God's intention for the human race. That's what is natural. What is natural, God has divinely designed a man the way he is. And God has divinely designed a woman the way she is. And God has designed the man and the woman to become one flesh. And Paul says, outside of marriage, not only is this type of sin unnatural, but all sexual sin is still sexual sin. How do we know this? Because God refers to these desires in verse 24 as sinful. He refers to them in verse 26 as shameful. Now, big question. So what does the Bible define as, what, if something is sinful, what makes it sinful? If something is shameful, what makes it shameful? Let me give you an easy answer. Anything, this is the definition of sin, by the way. Anything that goes against the will of God is sinful and shameful. No matter what it is. Anything that goes against the will of God is sinful and shameful. And Paul simply makes a point that we, listen, again, deep down, we all know this is true. Paul says 
There is a divine design to manhood and womanhood that should not be rejected. It should not be refused, and it should not be replaced. Now, let me also say this. Paul is not elevating homosexuality, that is homosexual practice. He's not elevating homosexuality above every other sexual sin or any other sin. Homosexuality is a sin, period, end of discussion. What I mean by that, homosexual practice, that's what I mean. It's a sin, but so is fornication, and so is adultery, and so is bestiality. It's, it's all a sin. That, that's why uh, when, when, uh, when couples come in to see me, and I'll, I'll always ask a couple this. So by the way, if you're thinking about getting married, I'm going to ask you this question. I'll say, look, this is hard for me to ask, but I've got to ask it. I'll say, are you sleeping together? I ask every couple that wants me to marry them. And I hate to tell you, but, you know, more often, you know, than, you, than I wish happened, they'll drop their heads and they'll say, well, yeah, we're sleeping together. And I'll say, okay, look. Can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, I get that. Not condemning you, not throwing rocks at you. I'm just telling you this. You cannot ask God to bless your marriage after you get married if you're not going to honor him before you get married. So if you want me to do your wedding, you're going to have to look me in the eye right now and tell me before God, you're not going to sleep together again until you get married. Now, why do I do that? I'm not a prude, and I'm not a policeman, and I'm not anybody's moral judge. But sin is sin. Wrong is wrong. The matter it's homosexuality, fornication, adultery, doesn't matter. So he, he's not elevating homosexuality above any other sin. Sin is sin. He was simply emphasizing this is a physical illustration of our spiritual condition. All of us have desires that have been warped as a result of sin and our fallen nature. And he says all of this sin comes from idolatry and we are all idolaters. So here's the point. When we reject the witness of God and we turn away from the real God and we replace the worship of the real God, the true God with a false God, we're just going to naturally renounce the will of God. And when you replace his will for you, which is always best, for something outside of his will, which is always bad, you've made a bad deal and it makes God angry. Now, what is the result of all of these bad deals. You think you couldn't get any lower, but watch this. We then ridicule the Word of God. Now, I want you to watch this. The end result of embracing spiritual idolatry and sexual impurity is social iniquity. In fact, I want you to write that down. This is a big statement. I want you, if you don't mind, write If you're taking notes, I want to say this again. The end result of embracing spiritual idolatry and sexual impurity is social iniquity. If you were to say to me, Pastor, can you tell me in a real simple, easy way to understand what in the world's going wrong? What in the world's going on in the world? I mean, what in the world's going on in our culture? What in the world's going wrong with our nation? What is, I mean, what is the deal? Here's the way I would describe it. We are having a nervous breakdown of the heart and soul. That's what's happening. You cannot shake your fist in the face of God. You cannot reject the witness of God. You cannot replace the worship of God. You cannot renounce the will of God and not suffer the consequences. 
And we're having a spiritually nervous breakdown. And it's because what you're about to read next, listen to this, even though it was written 2,000 years ago, you can read this on the internet today. Now listen to what he says. Furthermore, just as they did, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. God says, okay, this is what you want. This is what you want to get. You want sin, you can have sin. You want rebellion, you can have rebellion. You want to exchange what's natural for unnatural, go at it. So that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Now, now listen to this. Evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Other than that, they're wonderful people. They, listen, and don't, don't, don't get off the screen yet, guys. They invent ways of doing evil. Now, let me just stop right there. Turn on the 11 o'clock news tonight on any station. Doesn't matter. Just turn on the 11 o'clock news on any station. I guarantee you the lead story will be something related to this. It's never good news, right? It's, it's never that. Now, they might have some, but the lead story is always it's murder, it's evil, it's greed, it's this, it's that. And they invent ways of doing evil. All right. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. <laughs> Reads like the newspaper. You think you're watching CNN. Because when we reject, listen, when we reject our vertical relationship with God, rest assured that our horizontal relationship with others will be distorted and damaged beyond human repair. When we don't do what we ought to do when it comes to God, we will surely do what we shouldn't do against each other. When we break up with God, which is what we've done, when we break up with God, Paul says, mark it down. When we break up with God, there will be a breakdown in culture. There will be a breakdown in society. There will be a breakdown in morality. There will be a breakdown in decency. There will be a breakdown in integrity. There will be a breakdown in the home. There'll be a breakdown in the state. There'll be a breakdown in the community. There'll be a breakdown in human relationships. And let me just ask you a question. What else should we expect? So, Paul then closes with a description of when we really have hit rock bottom. Now, wait a minute, you may say, good Lord, I, I mean, it gets worse? Listen to this. It's almost like God knew what was coming. <laughs> All they, though, know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Whew. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, you know, it, it's one thing when we imitate each other in refusing God and rejecting God and replacing God and renouncing God. He said, that's one thing. He said, it's one thing when we acknowledge wrongdoing 
And we even accept wrongdoing. Well, that's boys will be boys. He said, that's one thing. He said, but when we begin to applaud wrongdoing and give standing ovations to wrongdoing, we have hit rock bottom. It's not in my notes, but when ESPN gives an award for courage to someone who transgenders themselves, we have hit rock bottom. And I love Bruce Caitlyn Jenner. I do. God loves Shem, him or her. I, I do. I'm not making fun of it. Really, I'm not. But Paul says, you're applauding it? You're approving it? You're giving medals for it? You're giving awards for it? Now, you're probably sitting here going, I am so glad I didn't invite my neighbor today. <laughs> when the truth of the matter is, your neighbor may have been the very one that needed to hear it. Because I do want to close with this. Anybody that knows me knows I'm going to close with this anyway. See, it would be easy to interpret this message as this big downer. But that's not where Paul's going. Because of Jesus Christ and because of grace, you can end up with an upper you see, the world began with the first man making this bad deal. And we've been making this bad deal ever since. But then God sent Jesus to die for our sins, to forgive us our sins. And here's what Jesus does. You ready for this? Jesus says, you don't have to go, woe is me. We've made a bad deal. We've blown it. You know, we're dead. We're doomed. Paul, God's, Jesus says, wait a minute. Yes, you have made a bad deal. But you know why I died on the cross? Do you know why I came back from the dead? So I could offer you the best deal to remedy the bad deal. And that's what you're going to see in the next several weeks. You're going to see just how unbelievably wonderful grace really is. Here's what Jesus says. We'll wrap up. Listen to this. Jesus says, I'll take your guilt and I'll give you my grace. I'll take your sin, I'll give you my salvation. I'll take your faults, I'll give you my forgiveness. And let me tell you right now, you're never going to get a better deal than that. You will never get a better deal than that. The worst deal you'll ever make is to refuse the best deal you'll ever be offered. And when Jesus died on the cross and came back from the dead, he sealed the deal. And he offered us the best deal to remedy our bad deal. So, what can you do about all this beginning today? Four quick things. We'll say amen. Daily acknowledge the witness of God. Daily acknowledge the witness of God. Number two, spiritually experience the worship of God, the real God. Not your idols, the real God. Number three, practically obey the will of God. Get up every day and say, Lord, whatever you say is right is what I'm going to do. And then finally, personally love the word of God. And it all begins when you finally leave the bad deal and you take God's best deal, the grace and forgiveness of God, which is absolutely free. So, Father, I'm so sorry that we made this bad deal. But I am so thankful that anybody, everybody at any time can accept the best deal. And I want you to do that right now. With his bound.
and with eyes closed.